So I will pray and we will begin. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you. Lord, we thank you for your will. We thank you for your sovereign grace, your sovereign mercy over us. <clears throat> we pray that you will guide us by your spirit and lighten us by your word. May we grow into the image of Christ more and more each day. And we ask this all in the name of Christ. Amen. Okay, so last week I mentioned at sort of the end the importance of understanding typology not merely as resemblance. So I think we're all familiar with the idea of typology. That is, there are are themes and events and circumstances and uh, um, narratives in the Old Testament that are continued and mirrored or repeated in the New Testament. So obviously if we look at, last week, the sacrificial system and the system that Moses received from God, we see then in the life of Christ how his sacrifice on the cross mirrors or is a type Rather, the, t the type is in the Old Testament of the reality of Christ's sacrifice. So that being said, the sacrificial system was always pointing towards the ultimate sacrifice, that is, the Lamb of God, the Son of God. So that's typology. Now, what we want to avoid is saying, well, it's typology in the sense that they simply look like one another. They simply resemble one another, or they have the appearance of being the same thing. That is undervaluing and undermining the actual significance of what's happening. Christ's sacrifice, as we will see, actually did atone for sin. It wasn't just merely a phantom or a, uh, a hyper-spiritual event. This is something that actually happened. There was actually a transaction that took place. His physical blood was required for that atonement transaction to take place. Just as in the Old Testament, the physical sacrifices, the physical blood, and we talked about how Israel, when they would watch these sacrifices take place, they were, you know, the people who offered the sacrifices were there. It's not like they brought the animal and just left and let the priests do it. They participated. They participated so that they understood and they watched the penalty of their sin be placed on that animal. So that visceral, bloody, violent, noisy activity of slaughtering this animal while it's alive and then flaying it, butchering it, and pouring its blood out on the altar, the people who are offering that sacrifice are watching it with the understanding that that should be us. And that is important as we transition to the New Testament because we as Christians are called, if you will, to think of ourselves as every type of figure during the crucif crucifixion event. So we can put ourselves, not that we're performing some type of um, eisegesis, but as we read the passion narrative or the crucifixion narrative, we can put ourselves into the places of those individual characters. We can put ourselves in the place of the Jews who betray Christ or Judas who betrays Christ. We can put ourselves in the place of the Roman soldiers who beat and mock him. We can put ourselves into those positions and we can do that rightfully. We're not simply saying, oh, well, this is just a mental exercise. It's no, we've actually committed sin. We've actually done things 
just as they have done. We are guilty as those people are guilty. And we would have done the same thing, just as we would have shared, uh, we would have sinned just as Adam and Eve had sinned. Okay, so there's, the, the point that I'm making here is that we don't want to just make this a mental exercise and just hyper-spiritualize it. That there is actual tangible things going on. This is why baptism and communion for us as Reformed uh, people and as Christians is important because we believe that there's actually something happening here. Okay? Any questions about that? Right. Now, we come to the Davidic kingdom. So we worked through the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. And now we come to the Davidic covenant or the kingdom of David. Um, and the important point that I want to make known is that as you're reading the narrative of the Old Testament is that you can clearly see that God's kingdom is advancing. Remember, we talked about the theme, the major theme of Scripture is the building of God's kingdom, God's kingdom honor. So as we read into, through the book of Judges, into Samuel, 2 Samuel, we begin to see the culmination or the fullness of the promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the forefathers, the patriarchs, being fulfilled and realized in the life of David and in the life of Solomon. So to get to that, I'd like to read a few passages um, working kind of through 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. Um, just kind of selecting a few that give us kind of the key turning points throughout Israel's history as they go from uh, being under the judges to then receiving a king. Why they received a king, what, where Saul fits into that pattern, and then eventually into David. So we can kind of see through these passages exactly God's plan. So we're beginning at 1 Samuel chapter 8. First Samuel chapter 8, verses 6 through 9. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them, according to all the deeds that they have done from the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways the king of the king who shall reign over them. So, what do we learn? God is giving them a king, not expressly as a blessing. This is a king, he's giving them a king, in place of them rejecting him as their king. There's an interesting passage in Judges when Gideon, he defeats uh, their enemies, and Israel, the elders of Israel, come to Gideon and they say, we want to make you and your sons king. We want to make you king, and then your sons after you king. And Gideon responds rightly. Remember what Gideon says? I, I will not be your king. The Lord is your king. 
That is a proper response. That is what essentially Israel should have done here. They should have remembered back to Gideon. But they are looking at the other nations and they are saying, we need a king just as the nations need a king. And so God says to Samuel, do as the people wish. Do as the people wish. So continuing on, next chapter, Samuel 9, verses 15 through 16. Keith, do you want to read this one? 1 Samuel 9, verse 15 through 16. Now a day before Saul's coming, the Lord had revealed this, this to Samuel, saying, About this time tomorrow I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall appoint him to be prince over my people Israel, and he shall deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have regarded my people because their cry has come to me. There you go. So, God, this is Samuel anointing Saul here. Saul is established as king by the Lord to do a very particular thing, and that is to save the people from the hand of the Philistines. The interesting thing is when you look at the calling of Saul and the... Anytime God is referencing Saul or the covenants or the promises that God gives to Saul, he never mentions anything about Saul's uh, lineage or that going on from now, Saul's children or anything like that will be established. It's always regarding just Saul. And I think it's very interesting if you read that in contrast to how God communicates uh, through Samuel to David. Right away from David, there are the promises of your kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. I will establish you. All these sort of ideas. When you read how God calls Saul to the to the throne, there's no mention of any type of hereditary title or any type of um, continuing on of Saul's line past his individual rule. Um, but he's put in place to save the people from the hand of the Philistines. And this is to fulfill... God's promise to Abraham that they will inherit the land. At this point in Israel's history, they've entered the promised land, uh, but they haven't yet conquered it. They haven't yet taken control. They've experienced defeat after defeat, and they are a conquered people. They're living in the land, they are surviving, but they have not yet taken control and conquered what God had given to them. So Saul is now the instrument, or one of the instruments, through which God is going to use to bring forth the, the fulfillment of the promise that he gave to Abraham, that they will control the land. And ultimately, as we will see, it's David who completes that work. <clears throat> All right. Going forward now, we have a passage regarding the warning of rejecting the Lord, regarding him calling Saul and uh, giving them the land. So I'll read this. 1 Samuel verse, uh, chapter 12, 1 Samuel 12, verses 13 through 15. And now behold the king whom you have chosen, or whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. I, excuse me, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, 
but will rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. The king in Israel, and this is something that follows through even uh, through the book of First uh, and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. There's an important notion that the king is not the sort of he's not the tip of the spear when it comes to the people's or, or the nation's moral behavior. The idea in the narrative is that the king is a representation of the people's moral character and moral behavior. So if the king has apostatized, that is a representation of the people having apostatized. So if the king is rejecting God, it is, in essence, because the people have rejected God. So this is where we, we sometimes want to think of it as, well, the king is doing this and the people are following the king. And what is being represented here is that it's actually the other way around. The king is following what the people are doing. Just as we saw, the people are the ones who wanted a king. They said, give us a king, God gives them a king. The people are the ones who first apostatize themselves, and the king is their representative. He follows suit. So as we read through First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, in the northern kingdom versus the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom does not have a single righteous king. And that is communicating to us, the reader, that the nation of Israel in the northern kingdom has rejected God. They've fallen into idolatry. And it's not just the king who is committing idolatry, but the people themselves are. And the king is their representative. He is following suit as well. So the, the warning of this idolatry, the warning of the rejection, is that if they reject God, the hand of the Lord will be against them and their king. And this is precisely what we see happen after David, after Solomon. The kings of Israel reject the Lord. They reject his commandments. There are a few righteous kings in the southern kingdom, uh, mainly Hezekiah and Josiah. But as you read those passages, it becomes clear that despite their activity, despite their efforts to reform Israel and bring Israel back to covenant with God, their efforts are too late. They're too late. God has determined to judge Israel because of their rejection of him. <clears throat> and we can see that, I mean, if you read the book of Jeremiah, the book of Ezekiel, those books are about God's judging Israel for their apostasy. Continuing on, First Samuel verses, First uh, Samuel chapter fifteen, excuse me, verses nine through eleven. Uh, Dan, uh, do you have your Bible there? Fifteen uh, nine. So First Samuel fifteen nine through eleven. Saul and the troops spared Agag, the best of the sheep, goats, cattle, and choice animals, as well as the young rams and the best of everything else. They were not <clears throat> willing to destroy them, but they did destroy all the worthless and unwanted things. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned away from following me and has not carried out my instructions. So Samuel became angry and cried out to the Lord all night. Yep. A question. Yes. Does regret really mean regret, or in the original, does it have a different meaning? <clears throat> You know, that is a great question. 
Yes, I am not a, uh, I'm not a scholar in Hebrew. I'm not a scholar in Greek either. I've taken a little bit of Greek, so Greek is a little bit easier for me. Um, I'm sure that there is nuance to that word. Obviously, theologically, we have to uh, unpack the idea of God changing his mind, God regretting things. We read, you know, all the way back at the flood, God regrets making man. He wants to destroy them. There are these instances in Scripture, in the Old Testament particularly, where it seems like God is wanting to change his mind or or almost uncertain. But we have to understand from uh, from a full picture of Scripture, from a full understanding of God's uh, omniscience. He's clearly not in heaven second-guessing himself, second-guessing his plan. So these instances where it says, I regret doing this, it's not as though God is spinning the top, waiting to see what happens, and then realizing the result and going, I should have done it another way. That is clearly not the case. So something else is going on here. And I would say... I I firmly believe that these instances where um, God is speaking of God changing his mind or his mind being changed or regretting installing Saul Saul here, things like that, those are for our benefit to understand that there is a point in which we can grieve the Lord or sin against the Lord in which his grace and his common grace will be taken away from us. We understand that as I was once under the provision of God. I was once one of the anointed of God. Saul was the anointed of the Lord. That's why David doesn't kill him in the cave, right? Um, but there, there comes a point where we as, even if we are in the covenant with God, if we continue to reject him, if we continue to disobey him, to reject his commandments, there comes a time when, when we are cut off. And so that time, clearly, in Scripture, God does not desire to do that. He does not wish, if you want to use that term, um, for that to take place. He desires that all men would be saved. Um, And I don't know of any other way that we could communicate it in Scripture other than than saying it this way. But yeah, there is a, a... the fullness of Scripture definitely gives us the mystery of God's sovereign will, sovereign grace, and these sort of passages can make us take a pause. But I, I suppose that's probably why they're there. <laughs> but yes, I, I'm sure that there are uh, nuances in the Hebrew. Um, but I am not a Hebrew scholar. Anyways, listen. So I will defer to them. Okay. Continuing on, uh, 1 Samuel uh, chapter 16, verse 1. And now we come to David. So we just read how Saul had rejected the Lord and God was going to replace him, essentially. 1 Samuel 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. An interesting transition here. 
Saul is chosen. He's chosen from among the people by the will of the people. So it's not as though there was a vote and they voted for Saul. God, God is clearly the one who chooses Saul. But the volition there is put on the people. That is, the people desired a king. And because of their, um, the fact that they were rejecting God in that desire, they said, we don't want God to be our king. We don't want the Lord to be our king. We want an earthly king. That is an act of disobedience. That's an act of rejecting God. So God uh, uh, listens, uh, listens to their desires and brings up Saul who is a corrupt king and fails and does not meet the promises and does not fulfill um, the role of the king. But here, very interestingly, it says of David that God himself chooses David. So this is the one, and we, we read this, clearly when Samuel goes to anoint David, he sees David's brothers and is like, oh, okay, it's one of these guys. What is the narrative being brought here? Saul is this big, strapping, strong, tall character. Uh, probably very strong, very handsome. The, the look of a king. When David is called, he's just a teenager who's running around in the wilderness. Probably not very clean. It says, you know, he was ruddy and handsome and, and things like that. But by no means does he have the appearance of, a, of nobility, the appearance of a king. So this notion that when God calls his chosen one, it almost always does not resemble what man will do. And this we can see this in the life of Christ. There was nothing in Christ that made him stand out that people would have been like, oh yes, that's the one who will be the Messiah. And we can see this throughout the life of Christ. When he enters Jerusalem, he enters Jerusalem not like a normal king would. He doesn't ride in on a white horse. He doesn't have the military behind him. He enters in on a donkey. So everything about Christ's appearance, and incidentally, everything about David's appearance when he's called, does not signify that this one is a king who will actually enact and fulfill the promises of God. So this is where I call it the sort of divine contradictions of God. That he does things that are uh, very, very contradictory and contrary to what we would consider. Our will about our life and our country even to this day, it clearly is vastly different than his will. His will for us is very different than what we would have take place. We would have certain uh, political figures and certain laws come into effect and we would, we would just sort of force feed this uh, Christian uh, theocracy, which, I'm, hey, I'm all for that, right? We would just push it through, and that's what we would have be the law of the land if it was up to us. If we could have sort of the omnipotence that God has, that's what we would cause to happen. But clearly, that's not his desire. His, not desire, his desire is not to have that take place, at least not yet in our country. So his, his ways, his will are beyond ours, and uh, I myself uh, struggle with this quite a lot because I like to have control over things and running my own business. I'm like, all right, I want to be able to know what's going to happen. I want to be able to create you know, a schedule, and I want to know what the patterns are, and I want to know what's consistent, and all this kind of stuff. And so often, uh, as soon as I think I've got it figured out, I realize that I don't. And that's, uh, that is essentially the, the journey 
of the Christian is that it's not our place to try to parse out and figure out what's going to happen. What is the will of the Lord? Our purpose and our calling is to trust the Lord and work in the midst of his plan. So it's not our plan. It's his plan. And we work in the midst of the unfolding of his plan. David is called to do just that. And we see that God calls David and David fulfills those promises. He ushers in the fullness of the kingdom of God as was promised to Abraham. And when I say that, the kingdom of God in Israel, the kingdom of God in Jerusalem. So obviously the atonement of mankind is yet to come. David is not the Christ. Now he is a type of the Christ. He is a type of Messiah, but he is not the Messiah that is uh, coming that will offer atonement for all of Israel's sin. But David is clearly uh, crucial to bringing about the establishment of God's kingdom. And he does this in three ways. First of all, he, he successfully conquers the land. He establishes a hereditary lineage. So that is, the kings of Israel now are from David's line. And God promises to David that his lineage will be the one through which the Messiah comes. And thirdly, and this is uh, equally as important, he establishes a permanent central location for communion and worship with God, or worship to God. And that is the city of Jerusalem. David obviously didn't build the temple. His son Solomon builds the temple. But David establishes Jerusalem as the holy city, the place in which the temple will dwell and God's presence will dwell in the temple. So what we have here is you have the conquering of the land. The land then is made holy. And we still call it the holy land to this day. Because that's what they called it. So Israel becomes the holy land or the nation of Israel. And within that is the city of Jerusalem. Which is the holy city. And within this holy city is built by Solomon the temple. Which is the most holy place. So we can see that the nation actually fits the same model as the temple itself. There's outer courts, there's the holy place, and then there's the most holy place. And this is these concentric circles are drawing Israel closer to God and in worship and um, service of God. Out of that comes the promise of the Messiah. So within David's, uh, or God promising David... hereditary lineage of kings becomes the promise of the Messiah. So 2 Samuel, turning now to 2 Samuel, chapter 7, verses 12 through 13. I'll read this. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. There is the promise that David's descendants, one of David's descendants, will establish, be established on a throne that will last forever. So here is the messianic promise in the life of David. And we will see that this particular passage is what... Um, is looked forward to in 
the subsequent covenant, which is known as the Restoration Covenant. This is when Israel's restored out of uh, captivity. But more importantly, this, this passage is what finds its fulfillment and fruition in the New Covenant. So the other important note is that David and Solomon, being the kings of Israel, represent the pinnacle or the peak of Israel's glory. So David and Solomon both represent the peak time in which Israel was at its greatest. That's when it as a nation was the most powerful and Jerusalem and the temple were the most glorious. And indeed, when they rebuild the temple uh, in the late um, 500s BC, when uh, Cyrus actually gives them permission to start rebuilding the temple, uh, they actually don't complete it for about 500 years. But... um, that temple is said to not be as glorious as the temple of Solomon. So there's clearly here a sort of chart where Israel is entering the land and we reach David and Solomon and then there is a downtrend from the kings into the uh, captivity areas. That is Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And this is because, again, Israel has apostatized. So, Solomon begins, we obviously know about the the sins of David. David wasn't perfect. But David did at least keep covenant with God. There's no instance in which we're told that David explicitly rejects the covenant with the Lord. He sins against the Lord. But he is always, he always repents and turns from his sin and is restored to covenant. Solomon is actually the one who begins the pattern of breaking covenant. And he does this by marrying foreign wives and then committing idolatry. He starts building temples to the the gods of his many wives and performing rituals for them. And so... From the very beginning, immediately after David, in the life of his son, we can see Israel starting to turn and reject God. And I mentioned, Israel then takes two paths. After Solomon, Israel is split. There's a division that occurs, and you can read history books and the Old Testament exactly why that happens. Um, But it's split into the northern kingdom, which are ten of the twelve tribes, and then the southern kingdom where Jerusalem is, is um, two of the tribes. And those two kingdoms sort of exist in parallel. But we can see, as we, as we read uh, Kings and Chronicles, that, as I mentioned, the northern kingdom apostatizes the entire time, and the southern kingdom slowly has that as well, where they reject God. And it eventually comes to pass where God cuts them off and destroys Jerusalem in 586 at the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. He comes in and destroys Jerusalem, levels the city. And from that point, Israel is then brought into captivity. And we actually read all the way back in Leviticus that this um, warning of rejecting God, the consequences for rejecting God is precisely this, that they will be cut off from the land. So I'll read Leviticus chapter 26, verses 27 through 28. 
Oh, wait, I don't have that written down. That's why I was like, where is it? Okay, here we go. Let me pull it up. Leviticus 26. Leviticus 26, 27 through 29. But if in spite of this you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you. In fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. So there, God tells Israel that the punishment for their sin will be sevenfold if they reject him. Here's the even worse part. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters, and I will destroy your high place, and cut down your incense altars, and cast your dead bodies upon the bodies of your idols, and my soul will abhor you. If we read the events that took place in the destruction of Jerusalem the first time, the first temple, uh, there was almost no uh, limit, there was no end to the depravity and the debauchery that took place within Israel during that time. And it actually mirrors almost exactly what takes place later in from 66 to 70 AD and the destruction of the second temple. They did in fact commit cannibalism. They did in fact eat their children. And this goes to the idea that the rejection of God, the punishment for rejecting God, is as severe as it can get. So this notion of, of repaying their sins sevenfold, obviously what do we know from that word seven? Seven is a, is a, a, a number of completeness, a fullness. So it's not a literal seven times their sin. How do we even calculate that? Right? But this idea that their sin will be paid back in full, completely, in as severe a manner as possible, that is what is being communicated here. So they are rejected, they're, rather they reject God, they're cut off from the land, and so we enter what is known as the Restoration Covenant. So the Restoration Covenant goes from the time that they are cut off from the land, so that is their captivity, around 586, through the intertestamental period, this is where there's no prophets, there's no writing of scripture, all the way up to, actually, the resurrection of Christ. So the restoration covenant, or the restoration period, goes from their captivity all the way to the third day, the resurrection of Christ. And we could say that the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, but the Old Covenant uh, model was still in place up till Christ's resurrection. So if you wanted to know when does the New Covenant begin, it actually begins at Christ's resurrection. It doesn't begin at Christ's baptism. It doesn't begin even at Christ's, uh, at the Last Supper, or things like that. It begins, the, the firm start of the New Covenant is at the resurrection of Christ. And then we see going forward, there are other events in the New Covenant before the New Covenant is actually completed. This is what's interesting, is, is I grew up, and I think a lot of Christians think that the New, Co the New Covenant, or the New Testament, just kind of started, started at the resurrection. 
it started and ended, and that's when it, when it was completed. So it was initiated and completed at the same moment. But what we read is actually it was initiated at Christ's resurrection, and it wasn't completed. Christ's uh, um, establishing of his kingdom, Christ's establishing of his covenant, doesn't actually find its completion until Israel is judged. And Israel is judged in the same way that they're judged here in 586. They are destroyed. The temple, the city of, of David, is destroyed. That, then, is the fullness, the completion of Christ's covenant on earth. So there is... Yep. So this is... We're, we're getting a little bit into some deeper deeper weeds here as far as eschatology and, and things like that. But um, suffice it to say that the rejection of Israel, which led to uh, the, Israel rejecting God in the Old Covenant, led to the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple. God restores them. They rebuild the temple. They are under foreign rule. They're under foreign kings, but they grow just as they grew during the, the time of the judges. God restores them, brings them, uh, is beginning to bring them back into covenant. And yet the leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, continue to do just as Israel has always done, reject God. And then ultimately they reject his Messiah. They reject Christ. And so what we see is the punishment that fell on Israel because of the apostasy of the kings of Israel and Israel as a nation follows the same mold, follows the same type, the same pattern. It's almost identical to that that we find in 70 AD. So both destructions of Jerusalem mirror one another. The events that took place are almost identical. And the, the point is that the first time Israel and or Jerusalem and the temple was destroyed, it says that uh, I forget what passage that is, but essentially they decimated the land and no one lived there for approximately 50 to 60 years. It's kind of up in the air exactly the time frame, but 50 to 60 years, this was just a desolate land. Jerusalem, that had been the pinnacle of Israel, had been at its most glorious, is now just a wasteland. And so that is what they are brought back into to rebuild and restore. And they do that very well. At the time of, in, in 70 AD, Jerusalem is again the center of trade in that, in that world, in that area of the world. It is the holy city once again. And the second time it's destroyed, the interesting thing is that the Romans come in, they raise it to the ground, and they actually do something even worse than the Babylonians had done, is they sow salt into the ground. I don't know if you knew this, this is why it's a desert there now. It didn't used to be arid desert all over. It was very uh, sort of, uh, not tropical, well, I guess tropical, yes, but it was much more green, much more fruitful. The Romans, after they destroy the temple, they tear every stone down 
they actually sow salt into the land, and that was the ultimate form of defeat because you couldn't redeem the land. Once you sow salt into the ground, you can't ever plant there again. So what did they have to do? They, had, they would have to, eventually in our modern time, they can do things to the soil and things like that to bring it back. But at this time, if you sowed salt into the earth, it completely destroyed it. So the point is that the two destructions of Jerusalem are taking, pla taking place for the same reason. This is rejection of God's covenant, the rejection of either serving God as their king or Christ as their king. Yeah. So next week, when we talk about the new covenant, that will essentially be the theme, is what is taking place in the life of Christ? How is he fulfilling all these things? And when exactly is the new covenant actually uh, finally established? And we'll see it doesn't just start and end at the resurrection, but it continues on. His, essentially, his ascension excuse me, is a crucial aspect to the new covenant. The sending of the Holy Spirit is a crucial aspect of the new covenant. So we will we'll talk about those things. Any questions? It's only just a little bit. Very good. Awesome. Thank you.